Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So it's 2020. I think as a way of looking back, we should all take stock of your greatest accomplishments of the past week for winter break. Oh, thank you, Shane. I The greatest thing you did on vacation. Uh, I took naps. Oh, very good. And I got 100 pages into a book that I was reading purely for pleasure. Oh, my God. I don't remember that. My greatest accomplishment is I actually started and finished a book that I was reading <gasps> wow. for pleasure. Wow. And it was good. Kevin Wilson, nothing to see here. Nice. All right. It was good. I right. recommend it. Yeah. I watched all I... of Fleabag. Nice. How many seasons is that? Two. Uh-huh. It's only two and a half hours a season. You can totally go home and watch it tonight. It's fabulous. Ben? I uh, did very little work, and I fired some incendiary objects. Good. Um, they were pretty. And, yeah, and I drank some scotch. I think we feel totally not ready to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just stick with it. Let's just have this be a podcast in which we just talk about books it's, and fireworks. <laughs> it's it's the low bar. Change the brand right now. so much more pleasant <laughs> everyone just than stop. our actual jobs. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> stick with us. I promise it's going to be good. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the 2020 Vision Edition. You sounded so energetic just I'm then, so Shane. ready. Are you tanned, rested, and ready? Oh, I'm not definitely not tanned. I don't tan. <laughs> I burn. Are you scorched, rested, and scorched? <laughs> I stayed inside the entire time. I got no sunlight at all. I did go outside for a walk yesterday to go walk to the theater to see Star Wars. How did you like Star Wars? I loved it. All of the Twitter haters can suck it. Okay. Er- which everybody- is going to tie in with a theme all right, later. Let's just, <laughs> so everybody on Twitter... Who's upset about Star Wars? Tweet at Shane. Oh my God, you're the That's worst. At Shane Harris, you're the worst. <laughs> you're the worst. I'm just gonna say, I thought it might have been one of the best of all nine. So there, wow. sit and spin. <laughs> He's still <laughs> basking in the afterglow. Of this is like, what are you doing? Why are you hosting this podcast today? <laughs> I just can't just decide what to make fun of you of. <laughs> Like, the Star Wars thing. There's a suck it joke in there. Like it's it's too much material. It's I'm like 1986 tired. all over again. Uh, I am here in the new Jungle Studio. The whole gang is here. Plus one. It's Tamar Coffin Wittis, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, and our good friend Scott Anderson. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. So good to be back. It's 2020, you guys. It is not the beginning of a new decade, but we'll pretend that it is. I'm totally fine with that. By the way, it's a clean slate anyway. Just just say it's a new decade. It's so fine. And also. So, uh, as Joe said, like, can we just stop saying, like, 2000 and it's 2020? Like, yes. why did everyone say 2008, 2009? It's and, 2020. And it's an election year. Yes, the year 2020. It's a leap year. Is it? Yes. That means if you thought last year felt really long, <laughs> this year is going to feel at least one day longer. So long. <laughs> 
Ah, on the podcast this week, the first of a new decade, protesters attack the U.S. embassy in Baghdad following an American airstrike. U.S. Cyber Command contemplates information warfare to deter Russian election interference. And we're going to talk about themes that we think will loom large in 2020. They're not predictions. Well, Ben's going to make predictions. No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm going to talk about themes to watch. Themes to watch. Watch this space. Um, Let's start with the big news uh, of the week, really. There was some big news this week uh, with this uh, incredible series of scenes of protesters. uh, I don't know if we can say storming the embassy, but certainly storming the embassy compound uh, in Baghdad inside the green zone. Scott, I think you are unique among the crew here that you have actually lived and worked uh, inside the green zone and at the embassy. So just to give us briefly a little bit of a a catch-up for what sparked this uh, incident at the embassy. And I'm really eager to get your thoughts as you were watching this unfold as somebody who has been there. I think from the outside, it looked incredibly serious there for a while. People were having visions of like Tehran and, you know, in the, in the, in the late 70s and 80s. Talk to us just a little bit about what sparked this, uh, this event and give us some of your initial thoughts from watching it. Sure. The, the embassy incident really was the last in a cycle of escalation, or the most recent, I should say, in the cycle of ex- escalation that's happened really over the last weekend. On December 27th, we saw a rocket attack against a Iraqi military facility outside of Kirkuk in kind of northern, northwestern Iraq um, that ended up killing a U.S. citizen security contractor, one of these guys working for a company aiding the U.S. military to train and equip Iraqi soldiers, also injured a number of U.S. and Iraqi military personnel, although I haven't seen exact numbers on on how many or how severely. On December 29th, the Trump administration took the somewhat extraordinary step, at least compared to past practice, of launching direct airstrikes against five facilities, uh, all of which were controlled by Hezbollah, which is a Iraqi militia operated for a long time there with close ties to Iran. Also, since nominally 2016, a little bit more so since 2018, 2019, kind of a part of this new part of the Iraqi security forces apparatus where they've been taking these militias and kind of made them a bit of an official part of the Iraqi government. Although quasi-official? Quasi-official. Yeah, de, de jure official, yeah. not necessarily de facto official because the central government exercises very limited control over them. But they claim they are or at least are intending to one day pay their paychecks, things like that. That strike ended up killing at least 25 people, at least according to Kitab Hezbollah uh, and other media sources. Um, I don't know if those numbers have been confirmed. Some uh, of them Iraqi security forces or all members of this group? As far as we know, all members group. and associates of this group. But again, depending on how you look at it, those people may be members of the Iraqi security right. forces. But a number of fatalities. On December 30th, we saw a number of public demonstrations start around funerals or kind of funerary celebrations or events for the individuals killed. I don't think there were officially funerals in Baghdad. Led to a march into what was once the green zone where the U.S. embassies and other facilities are. And that led to this large public demonstration. Um, that ultimately did lead to a number of people kind of penetrating the outer wall of the embassy, lighting fire to a couple of buildings. It's worth noting they did not get very far into the embassy. Uh, Really, there was not – it's not clear that there was a serious risk of life, certainly to the embassy personnel. There may have been to some of the embassy guards, most of whom, it's worth noting, are 
themselves private security contractors working under contracts. They tend to be, when I was there, there were Ugandan and Colombian. They tend to be other foreign nationals kind of brought in. The, but I'm not, I haven't heard of any fatalities or injury, serious injuries from them either. But it's still a very notable incident anytime you see anybody kind of penetrate mm. this outer wall. Since then, the United States military has sent uh, at least another 750 soldiers uh, to the U.S. Embassy to help secure it. I actually think there may be more than that now, as I heard about another unit going in more recently. Uh, and the Iraqi security forces, worth noting, intervened and kind of provided an additional security layer after these demonstrations got to the point of penetrating that wall. Eventually, they did repel them. And then they ultimately persuaded those demonstrators uh, to leave, talking to Kitab Hezbollah's leadership. And they said, we're going to follow the prime minister's request and we're going to depart. And they apparently appeared to have done so as of yesterday. So yeah, there was the, obviously these very kind of scary reports about U.S. diplomatic personnel in the embassy inside of a safe room. I think for a while there, it felt very touch and go. It was not clear whether there was going to be some sort of storming of the compound. I mean, as you were watching it, I'm curious, were you that nervous as I mean, as I was and others seemed to be? Or did you look at this and say, OK, no, this is a bit more of an under control situation and like this is maybe not as fearful as it was being portrayed? It's hard to say 100 percent. And I don't think I knew. I was nervous because I've been in a similar situation of these people not quite as dangerous, but certainly living there. Um, and I was there during Benghazi and other sorts of incidents where there were public demonstrations and other sorts of events that that triggered security concerns. You know, essentially, the embassy is incredibly secure. It was built with the knowledge that these sorts of events could happen. So it provides as much protection as you can get to that sort of thing. But it's not 100 uh, percent. And so there was always a concern that somehow those defenses may fail and somebody may get hurt. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to have happened this time. Um, that doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. I, I guess I would add to from the perspective of someone who has sat in Washington while our while diplomatic personnel in um, in post abroad have been under this kind of assault. There are a couple of issues. One is the sort of physical security of the space. And I think Scott's right that this whole compound was constructed within a larger compound, the Green Zone, um, in Baghdad, with a lot of layered security, with a lot of more extreme contingencies in mind than is true of a lot of our diplomatic facilities around the world. But I think one of the big takeaways from what happened in the in the assault on the embassy is that the host government, the, in this case the Iraqi government, has the primary responsibility to ensure the safety of our diplomatic facilities and personnel. That's true in every country where we have an embassy. And in this instance, it appears that what happened is that the Iraqi government gave at least tacit permission for Qatab Hezbollah and its leadership and associated protesters to go into the green zone, go, you know, to the perimeter of the embassy compound, and and then, you know, they force their way a little bit inside. And, you know, as Scott noted, ultimately, to, you know, a day and a half later, the Iraqi political leadership made clear that they wanted this activity to stop and the militia agreed to pull back. But I think that this is indicative of Number one, an ongoing challenge to our diplomatic presence in Iraq, because if we can't be certain that the Iraqi government is going to comply with its obligations to secure our facilities, can we stay? Mm. Okay. When it became clear, for example, that the Syrian government was not willing to protect our facilities in Damascus at the beginning of the Syrian revolution, we closed the embassy and left. That's what you do. And number two, this is the Iraqi government that, you know, we helped stand up, that we are providing a lot of assistance to, we're providing military support to. 
And in this situation caught between the United States and Iran and this Iran-backed militia that had just been attacked by American forces, the Iraqi leadership felt like it could not stand up for its own obligations to our embassy or for its relationship with the United States. It had to give a nod to Iran and the pro-Iranian forces in Iraq. And that tells you something about the broader balance of forces inside Iraq at a very delicate moment that we've talked about before on the on the podcast. And also it tells you something about America's positioning in this broader confrontation with Iran, not just in Iraq, but in the region. And neither of those things that it's telling you are good for the United States. I generally agree with that. I do think it's worth making one clarification in part because I think there's been a little fudging about this uh, in the media. And I'm not 100% sure of the current situation. But I think it's worth knowing the green zone as we think of it now is not what the green zone was certainly while U.S. troops were there or even when uh, you know I was in Iraq in 2012, 2014, uh, off and on. Um, at that time, it was really a pretty closed off area, walled off. Um, in 2018, we saw, I believe it was the prior Abadi government, begin to open it up a little bit, allowing through traffic, things like that, because I mean, frankly, it was essentially a congestion area and causing literally infrastructure problems for the city and has been for many years. Um, and I don't know what that meant in terms of the actual ability to get into the green zone versus somewhere else. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it would have required maybe a more active effort than it might have in the past to stop like a group of protesters coming through traffic lanes. Although whatnot. we've seen that in the last few weeks as Iraqi protesters who are protesting the Iraqi government have been trying to come into the green zone, which is also where Iraqi government facilities are. They've been repelled over and over again by Iraqi security forces. So this was an instance where the government did not repel them in the way that it has done it in recent weeks. I think that, that that's essentially, I think, the right takeaway point to a certain point. It's not necessarily a, a sign that um, these people were kicking down walls or they kicked the doors open, but it's that the conscious and deliberate effort that it would require to oppose some of these efforts, not necessarily a significant effort, but at least a decision wasn't made at the highest levels before these U.S. requests started coming in or the situation got out of hand. And I think that reflects what Tammy mentioned, that there's a power disparity here. The current Iraqi government even where it's opposed to these militias, doesn't always feel like it's politically or in some cases possibly even physically or strategically capable of really stopping all the things they want to do. Instead, it becomes a multi-way bargain where they need to find ways to satisfy one party's needs and also satisfy the United States. In this case, it seems like they said, we're not going to try and stop them from doing some sort of demonstration, some sort of act. Maybe even they were okay with some initial effort to penetrate the embassy's walls. At, then at a certain point, it went too far. Uh, the Iraqi central government felt like they could step in and put a stop to it and did so. But it's all part of this very complicated bargaining act with uncertain outcomes. I want to ask a question about that. So one of the things that's really struck me in watching the last few weeks in Iraq is how complicated domestic Iraqi politics have become. Uh, we've seen anti-Iranian demonstrations, anti-government demonstrations, and anti-U.S. demonstrations all in a very compressed period of time. And so my question to both of you is, is this a, a sort of positive sign about the sort of relative kind of independence and kind of emerging independence of Iraqi domestic politics? Or is it a sign of something else? How should we read the the number of antis that we're seeing in, in Iraqi street protests these days? So I think that's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure that there is a single answer. 
in the context of the protests against the Iraqi government and some of the protests against Iranian-linked parties and movements over the last couple of months, I think you can see a desire on the part of Iraq's Shia, um, who are the majority of the country, despite a sectarian affinity and historical affinities with Iran, to insist that they want a government that represents them, not outside interests, and that serves them ahead of outside interests. So that is important and salutary. But that is not the same thing as we hate Iran and therefore, you know, we love the United States, which is opposing Iran. And that's the way the Trump administration has tried to spin the protests over the last couple of months. So, for example, the Shia protesters in the south of Iraq burned an Iranian diplomatic facility in the south of Iraq a couple of months ago. No one in the United States government was like, you know what? The Iraqi government has an obligation to protect diplomatic facilities. Mm -hmm. they, the Trump administration celebrated that. And so I think part of what's challenging here is that you have all these outside actors imposing their own lenses and agenda agendas on this very, very complex political situation. I think that's right. But I think there's one thing we really have to be careful about. And I want to give credit to uh, Rush Al-Akidi, a, a really valuable Iraqi commentator here, on here. Twitter, who's been on the podcast with Tammy and I before on the Lawfare podcast. And she really hit this point home and got actually several newspapers to change their headlines about it, is that there's a really sharp distinction between the people outside the U.S. Embassy and the broader Iraqi protest movement. Uh, the broader Iraqi protest movement is cross-sectarian, complicated, a lot of different motivations, primarily driven by corruption, objections about the ineffectiveness of Iraqi government, um, concerns about foreign influence, both U.S. and Iranian. That's really what Tammy is talking about. The people outside the U.S. embassy was not that group. These were supporters of Qatab Hezbollah uh, and related groups. You know, there's a number of kind of Iran-backed militias that were involved. Um, they were the ones who were demonstrating, who were leading this effort. And it was being driven, again, by the leadership, who then was in a position to call them off and relocate them. This wasn't a, the sort of spontaneous protest that you've seen in other contexts. That's really important because the broader Iraqi protest movement has suffered immense violence at the hands of groups like Qatab Hezbollah and a number of other groups. So they're the ones involved with these violent suppression efforts in many cases. Uh, and so lumping them together really confuses the situation. And it's it's really important. And, and to the credit of many newspapers after Russia's and other people's proddings, they corrected it to draw that distinction. But we really need to be careful in bearing that in mind that there are two very distinct groups. I mean, Timmy, I sort of want to follow up on your point about uh, this tendency to kind of project U.S. interests onto the situation and, and see it through that lens, um, which is, of course, exactly what I'm going to do right now. And so <laughs> tell me how wrong this is, right? So um, so obviously something occurred to begin de-escalation, right? It was at least a potentially volatile situation, um, and then some de-escalation occurred. The only thing we really saw visible from the administration was a kind of crazy tweet from the president telling Iran, like, it's not a warning, it's a threat, which I don't really understand what the difference between those two things are in the context of the tweet. Um, and we saw some sort of statements coming out from um, uh, Secretary of Defense Esper and Mike Pompeo, not exactly clear who was sort of leading. So what's your prediction on when inevitably the behind the scenes story leaks about what happened? Is it that the United States was able to engage with Iraqi counterparts in 
diplomacy and bring about sort of this de-escalation um, as sort of a hopeful sign that, okay, you know, the guardrails are still there and you have this like toddler tweeting, but, you know, the grownups are still in the room? Or is it that this was a cycle that was going to de-escalate because of complicated Iraqi interests and their understanding of where the lines occurred. And actually, it had far less to do with what was happening on on sort of the U.S. side. You know, I I have a lot of questions about what was going on behind the scenes and particularly in communications between Washington and Baghdad, not just once the assault on the embassy started, but in the days Before that, in the run-up to the American decision to hit these five bases in Iraq and Syria, by the way, and to do that over the objections of the Iraqi government. So, you know, this is in the context of a broader American-Iranian confrontation that has been escalating slowly since the beginning of the summer, in which the United States has steadfastly refused to engage in forceful retaliation against Iranian attacks on American partners and American interests. And the Trump administration had said that its red line was the death of an American. Well, we haven't retaliated because we're exercising strategic patience, but if an American died, then that might change our calculus. And these attacks on Iraqi bases hosting American forces have been escalating over the last month. And so it was almost inevitable that the Trump administration would find itself eventually at a point where one of these rocket attacks would hit an American and they would have to decide what to do. It is inconceivable to me that they went ahead and formed their plans about how to retaliate without considering the consequences for the Iraqi government or where they want the Iraqi government to be to find itself in the middle of this U.S.-Iran tug of war. The way they seem to have played this was to put the Iraqi government in a position where, you know, it looked helpless in the face of an American decision to strike an Iraqi private military unit, PMU militia, and it looked helpless to object to this violation of its sovereignty. Remember, American forces are not there under a status of forces agreement. We're there, you know, at the invitation and request of the Iraqi government. Scott can get into the details. But, you know, it, it was almost like we did this in a maximally humiliating way. We did it. We crowed about it. We said we'll be happy to do it again. You know, and, and then two days after, that's when Mike Pompeo finally gets on the phone to the Iraqi prime minister. After he's called every other leader in the region, he calls the Iraqi prime minister. So to me, it seemed a very deliberate kind of disrespect of Iraqi sovereignty, however limited it may be. And that says to me that the Trump administration does not see an independent Iraqi government as something that works to the the administration's benefit. And I think that's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I generally agree with that. I, I also think it's important we think about the context against which this is happening in terms of Iraqi domestic politics. Um, the current prime minister of Iraq resigned on November 29th. He's currently still in office in a caretaker role. That means that the Iraqi parliament is about to undergo what is often a very drawn out and difficult government formation process where they have to create a new coalition, a new set of cabinet officials that can then get an approval by the parliament and assume office. In this sort of scenario, 
the Trump administration has played into the hands of the pro-Iran factions. They have taken steps that do, as Tammy described, really seem to put a slight against the sovereignty of the state of Iraq. Uh, and the Iraqis are incredibly sensitive about this. Since 2003 with the invasion, the subsequent occupation, any sort of U.S. military action in Iraq is highly controversial. That is part of the reason why the United States has generally avoided it for the last several years. They have worked with the Iraqis to try and address security threats. As worth noting, while we have seen a dramatic escalation in the seriousness and the threat level posed by these rocket attacks, they are not unique. This is a prevailing threat that has been in Iraq for over a decade now. And that we have very good precautionary measures, that means that we very rarely see serious loss of life and incident. That's why this latest one is so shocking. Um, but it's also a sign of the risk profile. The Trump administration had chose to pursue an aggressive response targeting multiple attacks, killing 25 people versus the one um, who's actually killed in the, in the United States side, uh, and then doing it in a way that is over the express objections of Iraqi officials when they were consulted just 30 minutes in advance, at least according to the media readouts we have. It is entirely predictable that the response would be a popular backlash against the U.S. actions in the United States and the relationship with the United States. The United States has, the Trump administration has decidedly to undertake that in an incredibly sensitive moment and at a time where Iran had previously been at its weakest point in several years because of the pressure being put on them by these Iraqi protesters. That ultimately led to the resignation, again, of the prime minister who was put in place in part because of a, a negotiation facilitated by Iran. So the United Trump administration somehow has taken Iran's weakest hand and dealt them a new set of cards that is much stronger. And it's really regrettable. And it's a complete strategic blunder. While I know a lot of people are angry and there's a lot of reactions, particularly in political circles, about the need to put up a strong face against Iran, I just do not see how it serves the United States' strategic interests. There were definitely other ways and places that the United States could have retaliated that would not have had these sorts of effects. Absolutely. Okay. So – Let's talk about another subject where U.S. strategic interests and the Trump administration's policies are often very confusing. Russia! <laughs> it's too easy. It's a layup. Um, my colleague, Ellen Nakashima, had a very interesting piece, which we published on Christmas. I don't know why we published it on Christmas. For maximum visibility. <laughs> I'm going to throw that one out there. I'm not sure why. Everyone has lots Day. of time to read on Christmas Because everyone Day. is hiding from their families in bathrooms like I was, where I read this story on Christmas Day when it came out. <laughs> Um, hiding from my children. <laughs> you're like, fascinating. Now we know how your reading habits have evolved. Um, so this is actually, I'm going to come to you on this first, Susan. Uh, the lead on this story is uh, military cyber officials are developing information warfare tactics that could be deployed against senior Russian officials and oligarchs if Moscow tries to interfere in the 2020 U.S. elections through hacking election systems or sowing widespread discord. One option being explored by U.S. Cyber Command would target senior leadership and Russian elites, though probably not President Vladimir Putin, which would be too, considered too provocative. The idea would be to show that the target's sensitive personal data could be hit if the interference did not stop. So, Susan, this sounds in a way like essentially the U.S. reaching out to individual Russians uh, and saying, hey, you may be in a position, people we presume would be in a position to exercise some influence over um, the Russian election interference and whether to stop it. Uh, and I guess what, saying things like, you know, nice bank account you have there sure would be a shame if something happened to it. Um, in a way, not all that dissimilar from, I mean, in previous conflicts, the way that um, the U.S. or other militaries have tried to 
persuade maybe positions of people and influence and maybe even threaten them, I think we could say. Um, but this re- seems to me to be a somewhat of an escalation from where we've been in the past when it comes to um, trying to deter Russia from taking these actions to undermine the election. And I thought it was fascinating as well that it's the military that is contemplating doing this. Yeah, so I, a couple things about this story that I think really stood out. Um, one is this very broad and vague definition of information operations. I was a little bit surprised to hear government officials and cyber command officials using the term information operations to describe what appears to be happening here, which is essentially, you know, imagine you're an operator and a little box pops up on your screen, you know, that makes, that makes it known that you know somebody is monitoring your what you're doing, or that that uh, your true identity is known, right? Sort of to um, to to startle you and to send the message of hey, the United States um, can see what you're doing, and dot dot dot. You know, you will be sort of held accountable for that. Um, that's different than the way we've talked about information operations um, in terms of Russian election interference, Russian information operations targeted at the election. And so, one of the risks of that is that. Anything you engage in yourself, um, you are not building a strong norm against. So whenever the United States does something um, or responds in kind to another country, what they're saying is this is an acceptable way to act. This is an acceptable way to engage um, whenever they want to draw sort of normative lines and say, we don't think anybody should be doing this. Um, you have to avoid doing it yourself. And so while this is certainly not the same as what we saw Russia doing in the 2016 election, and you can see them trying to be really clear. This isn't about regime change. This isn't about Putin. Just being a little bit careless with the language. That seems like sort of a um, a little bit of a, of a rookie mistake or and, and a surprising one because General Nakasone is um, a very, very thoughtful, long-term strategic thinker. Um, and I think it is really fortunate um, that he happens to be the person who was sort of um, at the helm of NSA at this particular moment. You know, beyond that, I think then the question becomes, how effective is this really? And to me, that all reduces down to, is there a credible threat behind it, right? So telling people... We can see what you're doing and we know who you are personally. You know, that can change people's behaviors if they believe something is going to happen, right? Are they going to be subject to individual sanctions? Is there going to be an Interpol warrant for their arrest? Are they going to be unable to travel? Um, Is their identity going to be compromised such that they aren't able to move up within their own governmental structures, right? Sort of strategic leaking in ways that that impact people's career possibilities. So you don't want to go into that field. This is sort of a first step. But beyond that, it's it's actually not clear to what extent the United States sort of intends to back this up. And of course, the big question is to what extent the president of the United States intends to back this up. Because whenever we're talking about significant counteraction, including name and shame indictment strategies coming out of the Justice Department or State Department driven sanctions policy, the end of the day, the president of the United States has to be on board with that. And so on one hand, um, super fascinating story, you know, sort of gives a lot of insight into how the government and and how uh, NSA and U.S. Cyber Command are thinking about tackling this problem. That said, this is pretty small bean stuff, and it's and it's being paired with 
incredibly alarming red light language from officials saying, this is happening. It's going to be continuing. We're going to have to deal with this, not just every single day up to the 2020 election, as General Nakasone says, but indefinitely into the foreseeable future. And so to sort of hear that degree of warning being paired with, and we're sending mean IMs on people's computers, (laughs) there was a little bit of a... You know, this doesn't feel like a big, comprehensive sort of response. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not smart to do. But um, I think the hope for for anyone reading this should be um, that this is the part we're seeing. This is the part where they're starting to sort of show some leg. Um, and there are other uh, bigger things happening behind the scenes and, and also things happening behind the scenes that are targeted pretty explicitly at Vladimir Putin. Um, because if you aren't uh, changing the decision-making calculus at that level, I, I don't think you're really going to see the results that we need to on the timetable that we need to. Mm. I, I agree with all of that. I, I, I guess I think there's a there's a sort of multi-level game being played here. One is what are the information operations that we are threatening to do? As in, if you released a whole lot of highly targeted information through the right forums about the right people at the right times, how impactful is that? And one of the problems in that regard is that, you know, you cannot hear respond in kind because they don't have elections in a meaningful enough sense to interfere with in return, nor actually do we want to interfere in countries' elections, right? Because that is, as Susan says, a norm we are trying to establish. And uh, and so we don't want to retaliate by interfering in elections, which they don't really have in a meaningful way anyway. Uh, so the question is, what what is the spot where you can hit them informationally that really hurts? And, you know, financial information, Panama Papers kind of things, like what are the things that you can do? So that's one level of the game. But the other level of the game is do these – like equiv- electronic equivalent of dropping leaflets over cities, right? Do they actually do anything? And what is threatening, you know, threatening to do it is itself an imp- information operation of a certain kind. And so I, I guess, first of all, I take two uh, important things in here. One is that we are being more aggressive. We're being more aggressive in saying we're going to do things and we're contemplating things that we have tended to refrain from in the past. That is good. It is a like it is good for us to be more aggressive and it is good for people to know that we are going to be more aggressive because to the extent you're trying to create deterrence, the paralysis that we've experienced over a reasonably long period of time and this is something that you really do have to fault the Obama administration for, that they were very concerned about this and they did a lot of interesting thinking about it and they did not do very much. And that uh, is is a real problem. And so the willingness actually of General Nakasone to lean further in here is a good thing. The second point, which I think coexists with the first point, is Susan's point, which is Yeah, it may still be too small bore and insufficiently aggressive and interesting. And that is a reflection both of the fact that we have very complicated equities and we're afraid of certain blowbacks. It is also a reflection of the fact that, you know, the more dark a regime is like this and the less responsive it is to public pressure, the less 
necessarily responsive it is going to be or afraid it is going to be of the reciprocal, maybe less vulnerable to information warfare. And so I think it's it's a very, very complicated picture. And um, I'm glad to see we're dipping our toes in a more uh, ambitious vision of it. But I agree with Susan that it may not be ambitious enough. And just to amplify that point, and then Tammy's going to talk. I remember having a conversation after the or in the midst really of the election interference in 2016 with a CIA official saying, you know, there are certain things that we could do, like exposing Vladimir Putin's financial information. I mean, I don't think he was confirming that they could do that, but sort of saying in the realm of. And then he quickly said, yes, but the Russian people probably wouldn't respond to it anyway because they already believe that many of their leaders are corrupt. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of you're, you're kind of climbing a pretty steep curve if you're talking about exposure of Russians within Russia. You know, their population might not react to it the way that ours might. If you Corrupt oligarchs them. corrupt. Right. right. Exactly. And the Panama Papers being <clears throat> – Partial yeah. proof of that. Right. right, right. And and I think that that actually gets at the underlying challenge here, which is one that goes beyond cybercom. We just talked about one case of asymmetric escalation and the challenges of asymmetric deterrence. And this is another case. You know, they're less vulnerable to information operations than we are for the reasons that you were describing. They're also less open a system, which makes it harder. And you know, ultimately, this is a state actor that is using these types of operations on behalf of state interests. And so really, the United States needs to be thinking about deterrence or retaliation or how you deal with this set of, of threats in the broader context of the state-to-state -state relationship. And if you think about it that way, well, there are a lot of things that we do do and a lot more things we can do to target Russian interests. We don't have to respond in the same domain. We don't have to res respond like with like. We're trying to affect decision-making, strategic decision-making, not tactics and tools. Right. But to that end, you know, one of the stories of the of 2019 that I thought didn't get nearly enough pickup was the delayed revelation that one of the things that Donald Trump said in that sort of fateful Oval Office meeting with Sergei Kislyak um, immediately after the firing of James Comey um, was that he conveyed the message that he wasn't concerned about Russian election interference because, you know, the United States did similar, engaged in similar activities. You can do almost anything sort of at the military level, at the diplomatic level. There are a million options and a million options memos have been written and, and sent up to the president at this point. None of them matters if the president of the United States is not carrying that message at the political level. Um, and it just, it can, it, it crumbles in a second. And so, you know, a, a little bit, I, I feel for people who are in this really, really difficult position of trying to figure out how to defend U.S. election systems using the tools available to them when they have been effectively kneecapped without even knowing it. And so I, I think that's a really, really difficult question of sort of, you know, what does credible deterrence even mean when you have a president of the United States that says, yeah, I don't really care about this? Yeah. Along those lines, Susan, let me ask you, one thing that strikes me in this is that <clears throat> this is something that military officials are contemplating doing as opposed to intelligence officials. And, you know, there's a different set of, you know, statutes and guidelines. And 
Ellen has actually done a lot of reporting on this in, over the past couple of years, the degree to which a lot of the decision-making and authorities for conducting, you know, quote-unquote cyber operations has kind of been pushed down the chain of command to the point where not everything necessarily requires sign-off by the president. I mean, are we in potentially a zone here where there are things that the military can do that the president doesn't need to necessarily authorize or that they can do without, I mean, not to make it sound like they're going completely behind his back here, but things that they can do that he might necessarily not need to be involved in that that, that don't rise quite to the level of the commander in chief needing to say, yeah, go ahead and do this and could potentially therefore be a bit more effective. Yeah, so we've seen some reporting um, on President Trump essentially reversing some of the sort of strictures of um, PPD-20, which um, was an Obama-era effort essentially to require um, broader equities and decision-making um, uh, sort of to to be taken into consideration, right? So think of it as sort of coordination with the State Department, whenever the United States is engaging in particular offensive cyber operations. Um, so Ellen and others have sort of reported that um, – one thing that um, certainly the U.S. military and NSA has been happy about um, during the Trump administration is the sort of loosening of the reins here. I do think that this is a sign of the military in particular sort of reasserting control. Um, part of that is about sort of downward migrating, um, you know, decision-making authority to essentially sort of the Nakasone Dernza level. Um, a lot of that is not about removing the commander-in-chief from uh, from sort of the decision making, um, although obviously that's might be a benefit here. Um, I think it's more significant about m- uh, removing other actors and other equities. For example, things that the State Department might be concerned mm. about um, that don't ne- necessarily share that. And so I think whenever we see sort of the branded cyber command response, that that's also part of elements of the of the intelligence community and elements of the military. Um, uh, elbowing back at people who they felt like during the Obama administration came into their uh, territory a little bit too much. And now they're going to, I don't know how many metaphors I could mix here, like Good old race bowl, plant your flag, whatever it is. So I, I would guess there's also a little bit of that going on as well um, as people are sort of warring to determine like where when the pendulum has been swinging so rapidly over these past sort of six, five, five, six years, like where it's ultimately going to end in terms of uh, who gets a say in what. One of the answers to your question, Shane, though, is that the answer is whatever the president wants it to be. And that's true whether you're in the intelligence community or whether you're in the uh, military. Obama wanted to be personally accountable for a lot of these decisions. And so he created guidance that required uh, a lot of presidential involvement. And a lot of people both in the military and the IC chafed at that. But that is the president's prerogative. And similarly, or conversely, Donald Trump has pushed stuff down. And you see that dramatically in the sort of arena of drone strikes where I think he's just like less involved than Obama was. And, you know, on the IC side for this, it just depends how broadly the findings are written, right? You can have findings that require like check in with the president every hour on the hour and you can have findings that you know, give the IC broad latitude to do all kinds of things without checking in. That's just a question of how the documents are written. On the military side, the commander-in-chief gets to be exactly as involved as the commander-in-chief wants to be. And so one of the oddities about Trump 
is that he very deeply doesn't care, in fact, has instincts that are, uh, you know, quite friendly to Russia at a personal level. And per Putin's personal assurances about Russian intervention seem to be good enough for him. But on the other hand, he has pushed down the chain of command a whole bunch of decisions that result in actually greater latitude for the military and for the IC to do things than they had. And so there's this weird, you know, kind of concurrent undermining and empowering that has happened sort of at the same time. There's also something sort of embedded in, in Ben's point of, about sort of Obama wanted to bring things up to the presidential level and Trump has migrated them down. And that's bringing things up to the presidential level has the effect of fewer things happening. Whenever you actually have to push things up through an NSC, when a functioning NSC process exists, or even just whenever it's sort of Trump and his core, uh, core advisors, getting something to a presidential level requires an enormous amount of work and deconfliction. And so um, one of the criticisms of sort of Obama's approach to this was the outcome was fewer things happened. Some people would say nothing happened um, because nothing was going to be pushed over that threshold. Trump, by not sort of putting that barrier to action, um, one thing that we will see is not just the down migration of decision making, but more things happen at a lower level, a larger variety of things and just more action. Um, and so that there, it's complicated how that all ends up playing out. There's there's some really positive things and some really negative things. But to the extent that the big giant criticism of the Obama administration vis-a-vis -vis Russian election interference was you didn't do anything, um, I, I don't think we'll see that. I think we'll see lots of things happening. The question is just what is the coordinated strategy and, and ultimately does it have an impact? Right. Well, if it's one thing that the past four years have taught us, it's that we should definitely stay away from making predictions. Well, so let's that. make some predictions. <laughs> so we're going to go around the table. We're going to talk not about New Year's resolutions. Not doing that. I think we tried that once, actually. Yeah. Should go back and listen to that episode oh, again. Oh, no. I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but sort of watch this space. Uh, themes or areas that we think are going to loom large in 2020. Make a prediction if you want at your peril, Ben. Uh, <laughs> um, but what are sort of the big areas that you guys are going to be watching that you think our listeners should be focused on? And yeah, be a little predictive if you want. Ben, why don't you start? All right. My New Year's resolution is that I'm only going to be nice to people on Twitter from now on. And, <laughs> and my prediction is that the president will be convicted by the Senate. You heard it here first. Okay. No, I'm meanwhile, joking. on earth. <laughs> um, no, that's... Not true. All right. So here is my broad uh, challenge that I think we're engaging as we speak and is going to become ever more clearly the challenge facing the United States over the next I don't know how long, which is how do you confront not one but two or more major hostile foreign powers that are in some meaningful sense providing an alternative vision of international and domestic governance to the United States, while at the same time dealing with an unprecedented climate crisis in an era of budget austerity and where you're already dramatically overextended and in a, in a period in which you actually can't afford the bills that you already have. And 
I think, you know, we talk about each of these questions all the time. How, how should we think about China? How should we think about Russia? What should we do about climate change? You know, endless war, we're kind of overextended. How do we, you know, we've been dealing with the same AUMF since the kids who were fighting on it under it were before they were born. How do we think about that? But we very seldom sort of zoom out and look at the whole picture, which is what what is the level of our built-in commitments that we have to think about in in you know massive security terms and and in global security terms relate in in relation to the capacity that we have to confront them and to take on new challenges or even face the challenges that we're already committed to. And so my interest over the next year or couple years is in trying to think about that big picture and when we have faced comparably big questions of a similar nature before. I can only think of one time, which is when, when Franklin Roosevelt came in in the beginning of the Great Depression facing uh, uh, both a resurgent or a, 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 a rising Soviet Union and a rising fascist world. But I'm, I'm fascinated by the aggregate problem, which I think we don't tend to discuss enough. And I've intentionally left out of that all the, in, the internal division that we have between, you know, between left and right and populism and sort of conventional stuff. But you can add that to the picture if you want. I think when you look at the aggregate picture, it's an exceedingly challenging one, which may be one of the reasons that we're such at such a loss for what the right way to put our one foot in front of the, the other in, in this era is. I'm just going to go back into bed now. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Susan. So I have two general predictions. So one is that 2020 is going to bring the dumbest manifestation of all the things we're afraid of. So the clip of Joe Biden that's been going around the past couple days where it's sort of a one line out of context that makes it seem as though he's sharing white supremacist ideology when he isn't, um, right? It's not deep fakes. It's it's the it's this dumb fakes, right? It's the dumb fakes. <laughs> it's the slowed down Pelosi video. It's things like this. And so all of, you know, we spend all of these time being really, really concerned about um, the most sophisticated extreme manifestations of stuff. And in almost most all cases, I think the the right level to focus on is what is the cheapest sort of, you know, most um, base manifestation of these things um, in terms of just sort of immediate strategic thinking. Um, I also think that in this final year or um, final year of a first term, depending um, of, of Trump's presidency, um, I think we're going to see Russia and China really, really ramping things up and for different reasons. Um, I do think that uh, on the Russian side, there is a little there, – there will be more of a sense of um, getting its money's worth and that, you know, that to the extent that they are going to pay a price long term for sort of this form of election interference, wanting to get as much as they can from an administration that may or may not be there in the future. Um, and on the Chinese side, um, recognizing that there is a limited window of opportunity to establish very, very significant facts on the ground um, and to establish conditions that the Trump administration is willing to be permitted 
divisive about that uh, that is going to really um, hem in future presidents, whether Democrats or Republicans. And so um, I, I do think we're going to see um, a, a pretty aggressive run um, sort of as we get into um, the, the election period and then potentially a, a lame duck period just because um, I think strategically that's the thing that makes sense for those countries. Um, and so I, I think that that's going – those are going to be two things that um, probably drive – a lot of attention um, uh, and bandwidth, and um, hopefully we continue this sort of live wire act of sort of perpetually just missing the big giant crisis, and it actually doesn't come. Um, but but I think we're going to be seeing more of it um, more frequently um, and with with uh, escalating stakes as we get closer and closer to November. Wow. I think it's really interesting that both of you focused on Russia and China in different ways um, and strategic challenges that they pose to the United States. I, I want to engage just briefly with Ben's point before I um, before I launch into my own, which is that, you know, I think there's still a debate taking place about the extent to which the challenges posed by Russian and Chinese assertions in the international system are a competition of systems or whether it's simply a great power competition. Um, and so you framed it as a competition of systems, but I'm not sure that everybody, even in the American foreign policy community, would see it that way. And I think that that gets to a broader challenge in attempting to answer you know, the question that you posed, which is that, of course, everything in policy, not just in foreign policy, is about trade-offs. It's about matching objectives to the means you have available and adjusting the allocation of means to the objectives as you prioritize them. But all of that is about the marshalling of national will and a certain degree of national consensus behind what the priority problems are and what means you're willing to put toward them. We are not – the United States is not a society starved of resources for national security endeavors. Our economy is relatively healthy. It's growing, maybe not as quickly as we'd like. Maybe it's not producing as much as we'd like. There are long-term competition concerns. But we're not in the middle of a recession right now. We can spend more on national security if we choose to. We are spending a lot. We're not overextended. I don't think that's the right way to think about this set of trade-offs. I think the right way to think about this set of trade-offs is what are we willing to do? And what are we willing to do depends on how we understand the nature of the threat. And that means we need political leadership that can explain it to us. So that to me is, I think, a bigger problem. But as far as my own sort of thinking about what to watch in 2020, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and this is narrowing the scope far down from what Susan and Ben were both addressing, um, I've been thinking about the entanglement of American domestic politics with the domestic politics of other countries in a different way, um, which is that this year, both Israel and the United States are having very high stakes elections in a very polarized context. The British just had a very high stakes polarized election. Um, with a very decisive outcome, actually. All of our domestic politics are intersecting with one another in these open democratic societies. And because our politicians have become so polarized and so short term, 
they have more and more incentives to to use other democratic countries' politics in the arguments they're having at home. And so we've already seen the politicization of the U.S.-Israel relationship in various ways. I think we're going to see that even more in 2020, and and I'm saying this across the political spectrum. And I expect that we may see other countries, you know, domestic politics become issues in our domestic politics to the extent that they loom large as symbolic or that they address particular constituencies that are important to American politics. So, you know, Netanyahu is symbolic for some in the United States because they're evangelicals and they care about Israel, for some in the United States because he's been accused of corruption, just like the president of the United States, right? These sorts of intersections, I think, are going to be a different kind of entanglement. I won't call it interference because it's not it's not motivated. <laughs> but I do think we're going to have to figure out how to insulate our national security interests, our national interests from that entanglement. So my area to watch is actually I, I chose social media, um, partly because as a journalist, I find myself increasingly spending a ton of time on social media and way too much time on social media. So granted, some of this is largely informed by my own experience. But I think if we look at the 20 teens uh, and and what the promise there was for social media platforms that really took off, frankly, in that decade. They feel like they've been here for so long. It was an idea that they were going to unite disparate communities. They were going to help enlighten people with the spread of information. Empower people. And empower people. And it seems like it has disempowered people, siloed people, alienated people from one another. Granted, this is, again, informed by my own experience, which is perhaps proving the point that increasingly it feels like when you go into these spaces, you are operating in silos. You're sort of in almost in zones of combat. Um, I feel like Twitter has become like the comment section of the Internet. Uh, it has been a place where like increasingly I no longer read replies to things that I tweet because 90 percent of them are just hostile and probably of that percentage – you know, some considerable share of it is bots and could be Russian bots for all I know. And it increasingly seems like a futile exercise. And that makes me really sad because as a journalist, my whole mission is to try and go out and communicate with people. And frequently, especially in print journalism, that's often a one-way street. You send an article out into the world, and it used to be that there were very few ways of knowing how people were reacting to it. Well, social media does let you see that, and there's some good in that. But I feel like that the promise of what these platforms were offering, um, it just hasn't even lived up to it remotely, in, in, my, in my experience, in my opinion. And I think that you're going to see in the coming year more of a maybe realization about that and people being just increasingly less sanguine about it. And to kind of what got me thinking about this was the speed with which in the last year during the Russia slash Mueller investigation that members of Congress seized on social media companies as kind of a major corporate culprit or a negative force in the Russian election interference and the way that they seized on them, especially in a way that they did not go after any other sets of actors. I feel like the country is like really ready to just like beat the crap out of social media companies right now. And there's going to be a big backlash to that. And inevitably, this will be a pendulum swinging way too far the other way. And there'll be an overreaction to it as well. And this is just the kind of the way things go. But I find myself increasingly 
feeling very negative about the effect that these platforms have had on people. And while there's been a lot of good that's come out of it too, I mean, I look at like Ben is a great example of this. I mean, much of like people's awareness of Ben's expertise and what Lawfare has to offer has been driven by social media. A lot of people wouldn't think of that as a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Right. I mean, it has inevitably, it is undeniably does really good things. But I just wonder if more and more people are just frankly finding it toxic. And, are, and I find myself talking to friends of mine thinking, you remember back in the days before we had Facebook and before we connected with each other? And it was fine. Yeah, when we used to talk to each yeah, other. Yeah, we used to yeah. talk to each other and it was fine. It was far more intimate. And I think there's just – I feel like there's more of a, a realization about that. Even in my own industry, Facebook and Twitter are accounting for – a vanishing margin of of traffic to our sites. I mean, it used to be that Facebook was a huge driver of people coming to certain sites. And that's true with some still it's significant, but it's increasingly less significant. I think it's not so much for the post. Um, we're finding more people just coming to our website and or going on Google and finding these and getting it to us other ways. Twitter increasingly feels like in my lane journalists and TV producers and PR people screaming at each other uh, and trying to sort of outdo one another. And it feels like a giant waste of time most of the time. And so I think you couple that with what is probably going to be the kind of social media hotbed of disinformation and polarization being pushed by foreign countries, probably not just Russia. I do wonder if 2020 is going to be the year that people finally just say, I'm deleting my accounts. I'm getting off of this uh, and going back to what life was like before. and When yeah. we all just listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the rise of podcasts may be, you know, inversely proportionate to the decline in Twitter accounts. Oh, uh, let's hope. Let's hope so, yeah. Um, all right. We'll go back around the table again. Let's go on to object lessons. Ben. So I have two object lessons, both related to the cabin in the woods and uh, very small baby incendiary objects. This weekend uh, or this this week, uh, Tammy and I were at the cabin in the woods and we were doing some cleaning up or at least Tammy was. And she um, reached under a hedge and she pulled out an old carcass of a uh, target of baby cannon, which was uh, – Carcass is a good word. Yeah. It's a, it's a can <laughs> – an, an old can <laughs> of easy cheese that fans of Baby Cannon will remember from the one of the two greatest Baby Cannon videos, uh, which uh, involved a can of easy cheese being punctured by Baby Cannon and spinning off into the void. It's a beautiful orange spiral. ribbons of easy cheese, <laughs> a shocking amount of which landed in the hair of Michaela Fogel, who is doing the engineering of today's podcast. Um, but that bottle of easy cheese, that can of easy cheese, was uh, brought to the Baby Cannon firing party that day by Scott Anderson, <laughs> who is happens to be with us today. And so I brought the uh, dead easy cheese can as a memento for him. And when I texted him that I had a present for him that Tammy had pulled out from under a hedge at the cannon, a cabin in the woods, his immediate text back was, I hope it's not a body. <laughs> and of course, in some sense, that is exactly what it is. So hey, here I, I bet that easy cheese is still good to eat. 
So there's oh, definitely there some, some still, still in here. here. <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable I've about. Been exposed to the elements <laughs> for a year and a half. <laughs> Not in that can. It hasn't been exposed. <laughs> it's certainly a wonderful trophy. And as a vegetarian, it's probably the only thing I will ever shoot, kill, and eat. Uh, <laughs> so I fully intend to stuff it and mount it and on my wall. So thank you, Ben. Yeah. No. So um, you know, one thing you should know about Scott, he has this like easygoing voice, and he's like knows his shitload about you know international law and the law of armed conflict and that sort of thing. So you think he's like but you get him with stuff that can blow up and he is a madman very exciting he is really into he's like baby cannon's biggest uh lawfare supporter and contributor of of objects to destroy if you have not seen the video track it down because as i remark i believe at the end of the video it is in fact oh so satisfying (laughs) yeah exactly Um, so my other object lesson. And only 80 calories per serve. Oh, yes. Yeah. So of course, there are a lot of servings in there. <laughs> in fact, there are about seven per container. Yeah. That's it? Well, wow. there are two tablespoons per serve. Ugh. God. Can oh, you imagine? <laughs> so my other object lesson is the video that we created this week for New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. And we will post it on the show page. But uh, a number, a couple years ago, I acquired a tiny, tiny little Austrian flare gun, which fits on a keychain. And uh, Tammy and I fired it, uh, baby flare gun, as it is named. Uh, and it produces – the flares that you attach to it are literally the size of your fingernail. They are tiny. And it produces a basketball-sized fireball that travels rather large distances. It's really impressive. So we fired it many times. and We made a little New Year's video. And uh, uh, Happy New Year from Baby Flare Gun. I hope your insurance company doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Susan. Ben is uninsurable yeah, from right. the onset. Um, so my object lesson um, is an article that was published in the Washington Post um, on December 30th a few days ago. This is a- an article by Ian Shapira um, entitled The Frantic Effort to Save Lives After a Deadly, CIA- a deadly Attack on the CIA. Um, and what it is is it's a really moving, powerful account of um, sort of the immediate aftermath of the, um, the coast uh, bombing attack that killed seven CIA officers in addition um, uh, to some other uh, non-CIA personnel, um, one of the deadliest attacks in, in CIA's history. Um, it's, it's just a really um, moving, humanizing account, um, not just of, of what happened, but of um, the people who were involved and um, has a painful but also very moving sort of coda of um, how exactly the survivors and the doctors who worked very hard to um, to save people's lives in the aftermath um, have remained connected to one another in the um, in the intervening decade. Um, so December 30th was the 10th anniversary of that. Um, so I, I would really commend the article to people who um, are not familiar with the story, um, or who are interested in national security, uh, you know, legal issues and strategic issues and foreign policy issues, um, you know, to, to engage a little bit with sort of the, the human side of it. And so this is just a it's a painful but, but very powerful and moving piece. Also on the same subject, Joe B. Warwick's uh, incredible book, The Triple Agent, is um, unbelievably moving and beautifully reported. Okay, so my object is related to the upcoming publication of a certain book co-authored by half of the Rational Security crew, Benjamin Otis and Susan Hennessy, Unmaking the Presidency is 
out now in galleys going out to various folks. And that allows us to highlight the blurbs on the back of the book, which are so cool. I think it's actually an incredible coup that you guys got these three people in combination to blurb your book. I I don't know whether each of them knew that the other two were also blurbing the book. But folks, on January 21st, when Unmaking the Presidency is released, you will be able to see blurbs on the back from Hillary Clinton, Jim Comey, and George Conway. Uh, and I just can't imagine a better trifecta of endorsers for bringing people together. That's right. Ben and Susan bringing people together. And Tammy, I hope you noticed that I did dedicate the book to you. <laughs> and I to Brendan. <laughs> I think all of them have also been tweeting, or at least I know that George has. Maybe not. Maybe Comey has too about the fact that they're all on the back of that book together. Which I mean, the th- those three people on one one cover. It, there's only one thing they can agree on, which is that Ben and Susan are brilliant. Yeah, it's true. My object was going to be that article uh, about the Costa I doctor. Scooped you. I'm sorry. You scooped me. That's okay. I'll just on the spur of the moment. Have I talked about for all mankind? on this podcast before. Okay, this is now I'm improving here. So, uh there's a, I think this is a show people know I'm a space geek. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Yes, the people do know that, Shane. The people know this and they <laughs> and they respect it and they love me for it. They you love you for it. They love you in spite of it. Well, you know, I have a dedicated following. Uh, I get people sending me alien shit all the time, you guys, and it's wonderful. Send it Shane coming. more alien shit, people. That's right. That's right. Send me aliens. Um <laughs> but uh, uh in the spirit of me recommending certain shows, so For All Mankind, which is this show that came out on Apple TV. Yeah, Apple TV. There's Disney Plus and Apple TV, um, which is like its new streaming service. That morning show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon like got all the attention. But there's this separate show called For All Mankind, which is an alternate history show about what would happen if the Soviets landed on the moon first. Whoa. And sort of the crisis of confidence that then spreads throughout the United States and all the things that the Americans decide that they have to do to try to one-up the Russians uh, in the new space race that becomes invented, one of which is they decide to field an entire crew of women astronauts. Uh, and there's all kinds of other stuff that they do throughout the series that it's sort of all trying to one-up each other. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting show to come out now because, I mean, A, it's like very space-focused. And I think it gets a lot right, actually, about the history of the space program and even some of the physics of it, which I'm a little bit of a stickler for sometimes. Um, But it's very interesting to have a show about this coming out now when there's this sort of similar crisis of confidence in the country and people feel like they've lost their way and then the Russians are our antagonists. And I don't know if I said this before, but I'm a big believer, too, that, like, we need another space race. We need, like, a Mars shot or something that actually like unites the country together in a Only common there was cause. One common threat to the globe <laughs> that we all were experiencing at the same time. Hmm. Is it hot in here? <laughs> it seems very warm outside right now. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a great uh, thing for now. Joel Kinnaman is in is in it, which is just great for any time, frankly. Uh, but it's just an awesome cast, and it's a lot of fun. So check it out for all mankind. Streaming on Apple TV. <laughs> Not a sponsor of Rational Security. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I've never even seen the show. I just want Apple to sponsor us. Um, but that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. The first podcast of a new decade, sort of. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. You can find uh, – can you find baby flares on the Lawfare store? You cannot. We do not sell 
anything that burns <laughs> on the lawfarestore.com. Everybody has their, their limits. If you Google them, you might end up on some kind of weird watch list. And, well. Indeed, indeed. You, you don't sell munitions on <laughs> lawfareammostore.blog. <laughs> <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter while it's still around at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook if you really have to. Uh, you can download the podcast on Apple and nowhere I else. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> when you do, please be sure to leave us a nice rating and review. It's really been helping people find the show, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Hadley Baker. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this <laughs> Music this week, this was a hard one, by Paul Nakasone with his rendition of Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. Oh, nice. I like it. It's a deep cut. It's a deep cut. Yeah. Was that, it was a Diana Ross song, but was it it also an AT&T commercial? Was it like a phone Michaela is nodding. It was. Yeah, she knows. Yeah, but Diana Ross is what matters. That's right. That's right. And Sophia Yan. Diana Ross would also be an excellent head of NSA. Oh my God, (laughs) she'd be so good, but you couldn't look at her. Don't, and you always address her as Miss Ross. On behalf of my good friends Demarco Markoff and Wittes, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and our friend Scott Anderson, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you soon. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.